You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. The entire country mourned as if he were one of our own. That's the reaction to the death of John F. Kennedy in a surprising place. Another place was the Soviet Union. Donald J. Raleigh's excellent Soviet baby boomers gives us a viewpoint of what many people in Russia thought at the time in 1963. It's a book that features actual interviews with a group of baby boomer adults that lived in the USSR. His take was, despite the fact that Kennedy took a tough stance against Khrushchev in negotiations, for average people, the Soviet Union was kind of rediscovering the West during the Khrushchev years. Such a handsome figure, one of Raleigh's interviewees said, as the American president, and the contrast with the Russian leaders, evoked sympathy. It was reported over and over again in the Soviet news, with images of the president of the United States hunched over. It was on TV all the time. There were some shocking reactions. One said that she thought Kennedy always looked Russian, and another was so mad at what happened that After the fall of the Soviet Union and moving to America, she retained, this is a Russian moving to America, a fierce hatred of Texas, because that's where the assassination had taken place. Others feared revenge since Marina Oswald grew up in Minsk. So uh, Raleigh's book, Soviet Baby Boomers, which is good for a lot of other reasons too, reveals that not surprisingly, Russians were skeptical of the official stories in the news and... Oswald's role and believe there was a conspiracy. Now, why am I telling you this? Because this is going to be a little questions and answers. In fact, I'm going to try to do 20 questions. Let's see if I can get through it. Did Mexico send any troops to the Great War or World War II? That's a good question. I think it's something important to consider as, you know, our relationship with Mexico gets a little tricky these days. There was no contribution of troops to the Great War. Uh, Mexico remained neutral, but Mexico at that time also was in the middle of a revolution. We had several excursions under the Wilson administration, both at Veracruz and then at their border with General Pershing before he was sent to Europe. In World War II, it's a Very different story. Mexico declared war against the Axis powers in May 1942. It was frustrated by Nazi sabotage, by submarine attacks of the Germans in the Gulf on their oil ships and other ships. They were frustrated by agents in Mexico. Mexico, under the PRI government, Cardenas, they were friendly to the Soviet Union, and Germany's attack on the Soviet Union angered and annoyed them. Mexico functioned as an ally. 
government-countered Nazi efforts in the run-up to the war before they declared. They kicked out propaganda agents of the Nazi government that were operating in Mexico. They also felt were undermining the Mexican government. And they offered support to the United States after Pearl Harbor. They also supplied raw materials to the American war effort. And Braceros, crossing the border, helped to keep food industries alive in the United States in the absence of a workforce when so many young men were fighting. Also, by simply denying both Germany and Japan an attack point by remaining hostile to them and keeping their defenses up, Mexico as a nation made an important contribution there. But there's uh, one more heroic story. And that is the Esquadron 201, or the Aztec Eagles. 300 men, 30 pilots, 25 planes in the Mexican Air Force that fought in the South Pacific. They did go into combat with the Japanese, but it was also significant as it was Mexico's first overseas operation. And it also gave the United States an important propaganda point, that this was indeed a world war. You know, we just throw that term around. World War Franklin Roosevelt felt calling it a world war again gave it a kind of prestige, gave it a kind of common purpose. And just like you kind of saw happen during the Iraq War, George W. Bush was seeking out nations that maybe weren't contributing a lot of troops, but gave him the ability to say that it was a coalition. So uh, Poland, Portugal, and, and countries like that. Same here. It was also important to give us that propaganda point that this was really a war of the world against an aggressive Germany. Al Phillips, writing about the episode about the German choice at the 1944 convention, the time the DNC rigged denomination. Enjoy this episode as per usual, but I thought there'd be more allusion to the not exactly interscene tiff between Sanders and Clinton, Ari alleged favoritism in 2016. What your recent pod did make clear, political parties in this country are private organizations that answer to no governmental standard of neutrality or fairness. This is something many tend to forget. As such, of course, the DNC favored HRC. She was a Democrat after all, and Bernie wasn't. I frankly do not see why the DNC is obliged to follow anyone who isn't registered with party or sufficiently adherent to its platform ideals to seek that party's nomination. If an independent candidate like Bernie is allowed to compete for delegates, he should not be surprised when establishment Dems bend the rules to favor one of their own. So writes Hal Phillips. Hal, you know, this is a tougher one to answer because I, I agree in some part with what you're saying, like particularly the part about, like, shocking. There's gambling in Atlantic City. You know, they're, they're shocking that a party that's composed of people whose very job it is to win a general election every year would have some interest in who's going to have that nomination and not just be, you know, people wearing black and white stripes and a whistle. Uh, how did they make that conversion when they are also significant politicians and party workers who want to win in November? That has to be understood a, a little more. Primaries aren't a run for an office of public trust. It's a run for a party position to get the chance to win the office of public trust. 
That's one point. On the other hand, it's called the Democratic Party. So you're always going to have that jab point that people are going to use on you if you're not small D Democrat in those primaries. So that, I think, is a point that's brought up. You also got to see the writing on the wall. Millennials, younger people, um, and, and it's not just younger people. I have to make that point. Newer voters, though, a lot of newer voters and very liberal voters that the DNC is going to depend on to come out were supporting Bernie during that primary. And so maybe that could have been handled better. I suggested putting him on the VP ticket or putting on a, giving him a more visible role. In terms of the argument about Bernie Sanders and he's not a, a Democrat, I also see that point, and it is it's hard to argue with. I mean, <laughs> in order to run for the Democratic Party, you have to be a Democrat. In order to run for the Republican Party, you have to be a Republican, and nobody should be surprised if you're not in your run. We'll say with Sanders gets a little complicated. He, at different times, particularly in the 80s, um, he was running against the Democratic Party in Vermont. He was actively campaigning against Democrats. You know, it did change in the 90s when he became successful. And in 1996, in his re-election bid, they ran a guy, the Democrats ran a guy named Jack Long, but the DNC supported Sanders. You know, there was a nominal Democratic appoint, uh, opponent in 2004. Party eventually gave him a subcommittee chairmanship over a freshman Democrat. When he ran for the Senate in 2006 as an independent, the National Party worked to stop Vermont Democrats from running against him. George Stephanopoulos went up there to campaign for Sanders when there was a threat of a Democrat running against him. So that kind of clouds the argument there that uh, maybe he's somewhat of like a common law member of the Democratic Party. He was caucusing with Democrats and, and at a certain point. It is true, though, in the, the real past that in the 80s, he was actively campaigning against Democrats. And you even heard more in the 80s, he was much more likely to say things about how both parties were were terrible and, and things like that. And obviously telling the story about the 1944 Democrats completely rigging a VP nomination, although who was doing the rigging wasn't always clear. I think you see a history, and well, the history doesn't mean it's right. It, it also means it's not shocking and new that something like this would occur. Okay, I got a question from uh, Stickler Hudson. I know him as Sumita Hudson, previously on the, on the website about the pardon of Sheriff Joe Arpaio by President Trump. There was a move by the Justice Department to drop the charges against them. Now, if you accept a pardon, then you accept that you're guilty, right? So how is vacating the verdict even an argument? Why is it even something being considered? And I'd say that's a yes and a no. The big case here is Burdick versus the United States, and that's a precedent that definitely says that accepting or knowing about a pardon means guilt acceptance. But like so many things, this in being used with a presidential pardon hasn't been litigated enough. And there are really particular reasons for what happened with Burdick. This is a case that occurs in 1915, and it's an editor of a newspaper who's being prosecuted because he won't reveal a source. So you're running up against First Amendment and revealing sources. Burdick is called to testify, and the first thing he says, he takes the Fifth Amendment. I'm not going to testify because it might incriminate me. So the U.S. government tries a clever tactic. They get Woodrow Wilson to pardon Burdick for any role in this story. It's like, okay, now you're pardoned. Now you must testify. He still refuses, and now he's put under contempt of court charges because he can't exercise Fifth Amendment. 
He's not incriminating himself. The, there's already been a pardon given. The Supreme Court did not like what happened to Burdick. They did not like the government behaving this way, issuing a pardon just to compel testimony. And so in that decision, Burdick v. United States, they said that, you know, if you're forcing him to accept a pardon, you're forcing him to accept guilt. And that's the precedent that holds. Now, I have to say, precedent's very important in court. So you see that cited a lot. Interesting. And, and there's so many specifics to that case where if something were actually litigated, I do wonder how it holds up. Now, of course, what's the most famous case in this area that we know of? And that's Nixon's acceptance of the pardon from Ford. And I really do think there again, there's a little bit of a, a it's a precedent, but it's a weak, weaker one because I think Ford and Nixon going into that pardon had very different ideas about what each was doing. Ford thought he was getting out of Nixon a confession. But Nixon's statement doesn't actually read that way. Here's what Nixon says. September 8th, 1974. I have been informed that President Ford has granted me a full and absolute pardon for any charges which might be brought against me for actions taken during the time that I was President of the United States. In accepting the pardon, I hope that his compassionate act will contribute to lifting the burden of Watergate from our country. Looking back on what is still in my mind a complex and confusing maze of events, decisions, pressures, and personalities, one thing I can see clearly now is that I was wrong in not acting more decisively and more forthrightly in dealing with Watergate. And then, instead of saying that he felt his actions were illegal, he says this, I know that many fair-minded people believe that my motivations and actions in the Watergate affair were intentionally self-serving and illegal. I now understand how my own mistakes and misjudgments have contributed to that belief and seem to support it. That is not acceptance of guilt. That is not acceptance of anything to be pardoned for. It's merely an acceptance of, thank you very much, Mr. Ford, and I'll take this, but very little acceptance there of guilt. So I, I actually see a little bit um, less precedent in that. Take it for with you will. It, you know, I guess if you're if you're on that side of things and you you think the pardon's a good idea, you probably want to go for that vacating as well. So I got a question from Kim McGahee, and here's a question that has been nagging me for a while, and I think you may be the best person to provide an unbiased report. We all know that one of the main reasons our founding fathers rejected rule by England was the financial drain, the extreme taxation. My question is, how does the average person's tax burden today compare with the tax burden imposed by King George on the average person in 1776. Thanks, Kim. I poked around a bit. There was no head tax, or as we might say today, income tax. No tax per person. I don't think the individual colonists had any direct tax burden to Great Britain, unless they engaged in importing, because most of the money was made through customs duties. Royal officers would be instituted at the major ports, Really, since the end of the 1600s, they were very lax in the beginning in most of these colonies, but there also weren't a lot of people in the United States in the 1600s. You know, there were no more than, than two or three hundred thousand. So it wasn't a great source of revenue. As, as the population goes up, the government of Great Britain starts to see America more and more as a place to tax. But those taxes were mostly instituted towards 
customs, so uh, tax on various imports. There were also a lot of restrictions placed on which we'll talk about in a bit. The one case where you might see something that's a head tax or a direct tax from Great Britain onto an American colonist would be in, it's still indirect, it would be in the case where they required that a, a militia unit be formed or encouraged it for the defense of the king or queen's lands. You see this particularly in Pennsylvania, where the Quakers didn't really want to start an army, didn't really want to fight. The royal government would insist that Pennsylvania build forts. And so the colony of Pennsylvania then had to tax its citizens to meet this royal requirement. Through the 1600s, all of the colonies had some form of taxation or another. And it was very different depending on the colony. If you were in Maryland, you were writing a check to Lord Baltimore. Each household owed a tax of some form to the proprietor. Same thing in the Pennsylvania colony. You owed to William Penn. These were proprietary colonies, and they made income for their owners. It's a little different in Massachusetts. You're being taxed by the colony for the support of the Commonwealth and, in that case, in Massachusetts, for the support of the church. Whether you were a Congregationalist or a Baptist, it mattered not. You still had to pay that tax. The Hoover Institution took a look at some of the records, and uh, unfortunately, they're only going right into the, the end of the 1690s when you kind of have this emergence of America as and the Great Britain starting to look at America as something like, hey, there's there's some money to be made here. And they start filling posts that, you know, while nominally they always had the right to enforce customs, they start trying to enforce it in a, in a greater method. And all of the colonies at the end of the 1600s had some form of taxation. In Virginia, there's going to be taxes in the form of tobacco hogsheads. The state's going to be taking some of that revenue in order to pay for the governor and the government. The Hoover Institution took a look at some of this. They found taxes to be very low in the colonial period. They, they did stop at the, the turn of the 18th century, you know, the, the period going into the 18th century, but they found taxes to be usually pretty low per person. There were different forms of taxes, but in most cases it was customs taxes. So if you didn't do any importing or if you weren't exporting, you weren't feeling the effect of those taxes. But most people, you know, this is still a nation on a seaboard, and most people are, uh, in one form or another, uh, doing that. Massachusetts and some of the New England states did have what they would call, uh, you know, either head taxes. Pennsylvania had a head tax per household tax to support the colony, very minimal amounts. Uh, Massachusetts did have what they called a faculty tax, which is very much like an income tax. They assumed a certain amount by your faculty. So if you were a mechanic, you had the ability to make this income and they required this you know, X, X payment from you. The colonies were certainly taxing themselves. Now, I'm not in entirely sure that taxes were the issue, as it's always stated, that led to the American Revolution. That's kind of the quick textbook history, the summary history. It's likely that we hear that because of the stamp tax fight. And that was very much the issue of a tax. In other words, the British government wanted a direct tax, and the thing that they found, they didn't insist on a tax on households. 
But the thing that they found they could do is tax any kind of paper. So all of the legal documents that would be drawn up by a colony were subject to a stamp. A stamp had to be on it, and that stamp required a tax to be paid. Same thing with newspapers. And uh, I think it's a lesson that politicians have learned that uh, offending the newspaper writers and the lawyers at the same time was not a good thing for the public relations of Great Britain. But the stamp, ta- the stamp tax was repealed in the 1760s before the revolution. It was just kind of the first spark. It's the thing that got the colonies together. First concerted effort about starting to boycott Britain and, and things like that. So I think because of the stamp tax and because of the tea being poured out into the Boston Harbor, we hear about taxes a lot. But I think there are greater reasons. The stamp tax was repealed at this time. Compare, for example, limiting where Americans could trade, the Navigation Acts, which forced Americans to trade only with Britain, a, a big market, but a limited one, and not to uh, trade with the other Nations and their Caribbean colonies in the West Indies, France, Spain, Netherlands, cutting off markets of what people could buy. Uh, I did the podcast recently on the emoluments clause, and George Washington was complaining about his fishery. Well, the British didn't want fishing to be an industry in Virginia. That was for New England. So they wouldn't allow the sale of the good type of fishing equipment to George Washington so that he could use it. There was a mercantile relationship and extreme regulation going on. Uh, Strictly limiting iron production, the Iron Act, something that's not talked about a lot, but it certainly limited the industrialization of the American colonies. Limiting where and how far Americans could settle, no farther than Pittsburgh. That wasn't very popular with colonists. Setting up Canada as a strong anchor to the American colonists and giving them land and giving them powers so that they could be assured, the British government, that there would be kind of an anchor to the expansionist views of the American colonies. These things were pretty heavy on American minds when you start talking about the revolt. You know, it's creating a a market for British products that was exclusive. The Tea Party was not so much about taxes. It was about this regulation. I like to look at Tom Paine's common sense as a founding document, and he as a founding father, if I am to use that term at all, because it was his document that spread like wildfire throughout the colonies and got the average people in 1776 thinking about revolution. So it makes all the sense in the world that we look at that document. We don't often do this, that we look at that document to see what was the argument for independence. I searched that uh, common sense. The word tax is not used at all in the document and is not one of the arguments. Finally, I'd say another thing to always think of in assessing the revolution is that that it is about the future and not just about their present grievances that America's took to arms and revolted against Great Britain. You have to remember that at any time in those American colonies in 1776, the British Parliament, the king, could send an official over and that official would be in charge of them. The British Parliament was saying that they had the ultimate right to rule Americans regardless of their colonial charters in any cases whatsoever. So you're thinking about a future, you know, right now as a country, and we got our squabbles and I don't like this guy's president, I don't like that guy. 
but we're not worrying about, you know, the UK sending over somebody at any time, changing the rules and saying, well, if you're in this part of the country, this person's going to be your governor. And often they came with nothing else but a desire to make money from the royal job that they got. States replaced these type of governors with elected governors. So I tend to think the American Revolution was a lot more about control than merely about the burden of taxes or a particular money cost. If the discussion is like, are we that better off because we revolted against taxes and now we've got a, a t taxes at the federal and state level, hey, that's something you can debate. But there are certain changes that came from that revolution that are much greater than a mere percentage of tax. What do you think of when I say the grand old party? The Democrats, right? I got this question on Quora, and it was, if the GOP stands for Republicans, what's the similar initials for the Democrats' nickname? And it's a great question, and there really is not one, because GOP, or grand old party, refers to the Republican Party, and it comes from a period when they were simply dominating politics just winning almost every presidential election. That's the period from the Civil War really to the New Deal. During that period, you only had two men that served as Democratic presidents, Woodrow Wilson, and two non-consecutive terms from Grover Cleveland. During the entire 19th century after the Civil War, only Grover Cleveland served as a Democrat in the White House. Republicans won strings of elections, unprecedented streak. They began calling themselves the Grand Old Party, and so you have that. You know, it's, it's a term that's largely attributed to the Chicago Tribune in an article actually after Grover Cleveland was defeated for re-election. They sung the praises of the returning Grand Old Party. And the reason you use initials is that, you know, newspaper column inches were small and cartoons. You could fit it into cartoons, you know, on an elephant or something like that in one of those. Thomas Nash cartoon. So, but even though it's attributed to the Chicago Tribune, we see references to it well before that. The Iowa Vindicator, an abolitionist newspaper in 1870, says the Grand Old Party goes right on overcoming obstacles and winning victories, entirely oblivious that there's even a Democratic Party in existence. You know, it's a that party would have been only 20 years old when the reference is used, and sometimes signal like, "Hey, you're a Grand Old Party. Stop all the bickering." Republican Party was very fractured in the, in the 19th century between the half-breed stalwarts, the Grant people, the people that wanted corruption, people that wanted reform, liberal Republicans. You know, so you see references like in newspapers, Republicans cannot afford to be fighting one another. We ought to reserve our strength and rally like a band of brothers around the grand old party of liberty. And just one quick point on that. The term democracy was used for the Democratic Party up into the Civil War. It's kind of like a regal term for the party, and that kind of lies, there lies the answer to the question. It used to be referred to in such terms. In fact, we have references. Here's the Pennsylvania Agitator, another abolitionist newspaper prior to the Civil War that says, if the grand old Democratic Party is only accommodating enough to dissolve the Union, it will be a great relief to the free North. And a pro-democratic newspaper in Wisconsin used the same term. However, we may differ with some as regards to the present war. 
and desire its vigorous prosecution. We know only the democracy and the grand old party that has ever battled under its banners for popular rights and the privileges allowed by the Constitution. So there you have it. The term grand old party was at one time used to reference the Democratic Party, which had a longer history. Republicans co-opted it, and as they began a period of prominence in politics, they took the term. And that's the story. I don't know how well the story's known. I mean, listeners to this program will know the story that in 1980, at the convention in Detroit, the GOP convention, there was talk of the Ford forces and the Reagan forces joining together. And Reagan wasn't opposed to it in the beginning. But as negotiations ensued, it turned out what Ford wanted was very much a kind of co-presidency, not just to be vice president under Reagan, but to have a kind of co-presidency and to be able to weigh in a lot of decisions, particularly foreign policy decisions. He wanted, for instance, most likely to keep uh, or to retain Kissinger as Secretary of State, or at least in a high-ranking foreign policy position. That idea was pretty much dead. I don't think Reagan mind perhaps running with uh, on a unity ticket with Ford. Uh, would have been a little weird running with a former president, but Reagan was nobody's VP, and the minute that Ford was kind of warming into a co-presidency-type proposal, there was no deal. And they found in George H.W. Bush a moderate who was more on the Nixon-Ford, that side of things. Ryan T. Richardson writes on the fans of My History Can Beat Up Your Politics discussion group, Bruce, interesting thought experiment. In the past, you've said that without a Teddy presidency, Theodore Roosevelt, there would be no FDR. Had Reagan and Ford worked out a deal for vice president in 1980, would there have been a George H.W. Bush presidency? And if no H.W. Bush presidency, would there have been a W. presidency? And if no W. presidency, without the 2008 narrative of political dynasties, Bush, Clinton, Bush, Clinton, would we have had an Obama presidency? Well, thanks, Ryan Richardson. That is alt history on steroids, but it's grabbable, at least particularly in the beginning point. I don't know if I could take you from Ford to Obama, but at least in the beginning point. So, yeah, no, obviously, if Ford did become VP, there wouldn't be an H.W. Bush vice presidency, because Ford would have been vice president. Now, I don't think it would have lasted very long. I don't think Ford's vice presidency would have lasted into 1984. I think on both sides, they would have um, had little patience with each other. Ford had been president, now to go to being vice president. You know, and Reagan, I think, really wanted to get on with a radical transformation of things and not have to negotiate. So it does open up the vice presidential choice in 1984. I don't know if they pick George H.W. Bush at that point. Yes, he did run in the primaries against Reagan. I suppose his name would be out there, but it's possible he could have taken it in 84, and then we have the same chain of events you're talking about. But let's say there is no H.W. Bush president. Yeah, then I don't think George W. Bush is a factor. I think the name came from, obviously, he was definitely a presidential son and wasn't doing very much, even when his father was president. So without his father, I don't think you see a, a G.W. Bush presidency at all. And then I, I kind of could take your point. It's a little bit far out, but... um. 
Yeah, 2008 had a lot to do with, like, do we, all right, we just had two Bushes, do we want another Clinton? And that helped Obama in the primary, so really hard to go that far out. You know, Bob Dole had been the nominee in 1976, so maybe in 1984 he becomes the nominee. Howard Baker, senator from Tennessee, known moderate, maybe that's a guy. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early, so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. What is the most disastrous defeat that any Army, Navy, or Air Force has ever had? This I was asked on Quora, but I'll say so many answers, but I'll say the Battle of Tsushima. It ends the Russo-Japanese War. You know, war is declared in 1904. The entire Western fleet that's in the Baltic is transported around South Africa and all the way to the Pacific. It's stopping in all of these ports. So everybody knows this fleet is coming. And they meet the Japanese in the Pacific. The Japanese are totally coordinating their ships with wireless, and the Russians are not, and and are completely routed. Japanese win a huge victory and sink hundreds of tons into the Pacific Ocean. It had a kind of the whole world is watching effect. It ends the Russo-Japanese War in terms in Japanese favor. Those negotiations are concluded, by the way, in America at Portsmouth. So Theodore Roosevelt plays a huge role in these negotiations in ending the war, and it kind of establishes the American president as a diplomatic figure and America as a player in international affairs. Dan Lee writes on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics Facebook site, the fans of My History Can Beat Up Your Politics discussion group. This is back from August. I was listening to the Washington Post Constitutional Podcast earlier today, and the episode was essentially a history of advances of women throughout the life of the Constitution. There is considerable discussion of the proposed Equal Rights Amendment, and this led me to wonder, does the Equal Rights Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment really cover all of the same things that were already included in the ERA? Functionally, what would change, or what would have changed? Thanks, Dan. Uh, This is the text of the ERA, and it did come very close to being passed in the early 80s. If it were not for a counter-movement of conservatives, Philip Shafley being a key one here, it came pretty close. It had a lot of bipartisan support. Here's the text. Section 1, equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or any state on account of sex. Section 2, the Congress shall have full power to enforce by appropriate legislation the provisions of the article. Section 3, the amendment shall take effect two years after the date of ratification. Pretty simple, but I think it would have raised the profile of gender in most cases extremely, lowered the threshold for intervention on the part of judges, uh, make a clear line in issues, the most notably being sex discrimination. 14th is a fairly cloudy law, and it refers to persons and citizens. Um, 
The late Justice Scalia, for instance, in an interview said he didn't think the 14th applied to sex discrimination at all because it had referenced that all persons were equal. For even a textualist conservative, if you're passing that ERA, it's in black and white letters. Clear, loud signal in the text as to what's to be protected. What's on the other side? Well, there would have been more lawsuits. There's no doubt about that. Um, The negative would have been suits, tying up courts. Um, One could argue that I'm, I'm sure if we were sitting here with a business person, they wouldn't be happy about the potential of that and what it would mean to their human resources and what kind of staff they'd have to devote to that or their legal that's that's the negative the positive might have been that a chain reaction of better practices over these years in terms of discrimination because companies agencies would have been afraid of lawsuits that now have a constitutional force On the West Wing, this TV show, the Speaker of the House took over the presidency for a period. Was this accurate, and would they be considered a full president? Okay. Um, Yeah, that TV show, you're talking about the West Wing TV show written by Aaron Sorkin, or at least the initial parts written by Aaron Sorkin and then completed by Wells and Lawrence O'Donnell and others in season five, where President Walker, who is played by John Goodman, takes over. There was no vice president. The vice president had tendered his resignation. That was accepted. He's no longer VP. They're looking for VP candidates when the president felt he needed to utilize the 25th Amendment because his daughter had been kidnapped, and he didn't feel he could make rational decisions needed to be made for the good of the nation. So he writes a letter exercising the clause in the 25th Amendment where now the speaker becomes president until the time that the president submits another letter saying, okay, he can now resume the office. Officially, in the 25th Amendment, it is called the acting president. This is a term that we long ago gave up on. Uh, There was a lot of people who thought that during uh, John Tyler's presidency, when he took the presidency over, presidency of William Henry Harrison, that he was merely the acting president. But now we use this term, the 25th Amendment. It kind of brought that term back. I would say in every way they are a full president. I think the key thing to understand is this. can only be one president. It's a unitary executive under the Constitution. They thought about that. Many governors had, you know, of states and colonies had advisory councils that kind of became a plural executive. It's not so with the president of the United States, a single person. So only one person has it at any one time. Uh, They give an order, it must be followed if it's constitutional. Would history consider them full? It's never happened, so we'd have to see how history treats it. But my sense would be that it would be. People would be obliged to mention that speaker who had become president on the list. People that like to do that. They're still bringing up that David Rice Atchison, who really wasn't president, but they say he was president for a day and all of that. Ward Batty writes on the fans of My History Could Beat Up Your Politics Might this storm and the results of it help Puerto Rico gain statehood? And I think it would not for a simple reason, and that's two senators. And uh, 
You know, the politics of the Senate has been responsible for creating states and for states not happening uh, throughout history. Republicans in the period after the Civil War used this. I mean, you really start before the Civil War with the Kansas-Nebraska Act and the idea that that would generate Senate uh, seats. There's always been this battle, both Dakotas being created, the Colorado Territory, the Wyoming Territory being turned into states. This is an attempt to create more Senate seats. Hello all, Eric Rivenis with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers and have a safe tomorrow. It's difficult to think about the 1952 campaign when one is used to the primary politics of today. Because on the Democratic side, Adelaide Stevenson, who was the Democratic candidate in 1952, did not win a single primary, and yet he became the party's nominee. In fact, he wasn't even one of the early people being talked about. Kashif Khan writes, could you do a brief summary of the 1952 Democratic primary campaigns? I have trouble wrapping my head around a couple of facts. How did Kefauver, he's talking about Estes Kefauver, the senator from Tennessee, not get the nomination outright, despite winning the majority of primaries? As I understand it, the Democratic Party in many states were against his anti-organized crime stance and refused to back him. Right. That is definitely part of it. I mean, they didn't directly come out and say they were against him fighting organized crime, but one of the things that he was doing with one of the first nationally televised congressional hearings in 1951. Well, you just started having houses getting TV stats, and uh, that was generating press. And yes, it was exposing some of the connections between city bosses and organized crime. Um, but what you had is only a few of the states had primaries that year, so like Pennsylvania and Maryland and Wisconsin and Minnesota and Oregon, and in a, a few places like that, New Hampshire certainly had a non-binding convention. The rest of the states picked delegates through party conventions, and these are generally controlled by the party bosses. Party bosses did not like Kefauver. First of all, he's a little showy. Um, Truman was involved in this. Truman had something like a 66% disapproval rating. He's enormously unpopular. It was the uh, unpopular Korean conflict. It was the re, uh, economic conditions. It was also bearing the brunt of some attacks by political opponents that there were communists in the administration. So all of that started to add up. And uh, Truman was fairly unpopular towards the end there. So just because he was unpopular didn't mean he want to stay completely out of it. He didn't have any intention in running. Uh, he claims that um, had nothing to do with the primaries, that he decided not to run. There is a primary held in New Hampshire in 1952, and Kefauver beats Truman. And this is just devastating for the uh, Truman folks. But Truman claims in his memoir that he 
he was planning not to run anyway. There was some talk about maybe the vice president, Albin Barkley, but uh, some of the labor union people don't like him and consider him a little bit old. So there's a, a the reason that Ally Stevenson gets the nomination is the party convention is in Chicago, and there's kind of a local movement. They draft Stevenson that happens at that convention in 1952, and Stevenson becomes the nominee. He's also going to be the nominee in 56, and he was also talked about in 1960 as well. So primaries just weren't influential, and that's why Kefauver, despite winning the primaries and being this kind of early television candidate, doesn't win. Who would win in a boxing match between George Washington and Teddy Roosevelt? <laughs> George Washington. Six foot two, he's taller, he's got longer wreath, Theodore Roosevelt at 5'10". Might go to the decision if both are in their prime. If the United States hadn't annexed Texas, would Sam Houston have won a third term as president of the Republic of Texas? Yeah, it's interesting to think of a state as a country, and that was Texas's short history. There's no reason to think that he wouldn't have. He was certainly a dominant fixture, a leader in Texas politics. There were, there were two main factions, though. So even though Texas has this short history, there's two main factions in Texas's short history of presidential policy. And one is Sam Houston, and the other is David Burnett and Mirabu Lamar. Uh, Houston had triumphed over that opposing faction with his second presidential election. And Anson Jones, who had succeeded him, was Houston's secretary of state in any case and was aligned with him. Houston would go on to win a U.S. Senate seat, and then he would win the governorship of Texas when it became a state. There's every reason to believe that uh, Houston would have had that office if he wanted it. Why do people insist on classifying Nazis as right-wing? The name is a contraction of National Socialist. First of all, I have to give my caveat that I think that just like using Nazis in a debate is always quicksand that is not helpful to political discussion. America is a democracy, and so comparing it to a group of people that instilled an enabling act prevented all other parties from existing, proceeded to kill some political opponents, and then just rule as a dictatorship, really has no place in comparison to any point on the spectrum. But in terms of why they shouldn't be classified as left, I mean, the SDP was the main socialist party in Germany, and there was also communists in the Reichstag. They were killed, tortured, prevented from voting, exiled, as soon as the Nazis came to power. But then you could see who they joined with. Their consistent ally, all the way up to the seizure of power, was the DNVP, which would have been a very non-socialist, corporate conservative party. And you have the Harsburg Front. The Harsburg Front of 1931 was a group of conservative parties of which the National Socialists were part of. Eugene Debs, they were not. It doesn't fit well with German politics. You know, comparing German politics to American politics doesn't fit well, particularly on this question of socialism. In American politics, right and socialism doesn't mix. But Germany generally liked social legislation. And the time where you're discussing already saw long ingrained social programs that 
Americans were still in the discussion stages on. Otto von Bismarck's social legislation, the Health Insurance Bill of 1883, Accident Insurance Bill of 1884, Old Age and Disability Insurance Bill of 1889. This is well before the time of the American New Deal, and this is coming from Otto von Bismarck. The use of the name socialist in a party was not so crazy in Germany. Where they did not agree with the agenda of the day is that they were not international socialists, all right? This was not like the Soviet Union-type socialism. This was national socialists, so socialists for German working men only and not getting involved with international socialism, an agenda outside of Germany. It is not right to take all people operating in a democratic country like the United States and compare them to people who were running a military dictatorship. Michael Ranser writes on the My History Could Beat Up Your Politics site, I saw this recent article in the British magazine, The Economist, about some current GOP efforts to call a constitutional convention in the United States. What does history tell us about how this might proceed? Um, And I did read a bit of this article, and I guess the movement is a little bit closer than I had thought, but there, there is a group that has some legislatures uh, interested in putting forth a balanced budget amendment and getting that done not through Congress, but getting it through a convention of states. Article 5 of the Constitution actually has two paths by which future amendments can be proposed. Congress can propose amendments, or Congress can summon a convention of representatives from the states to propose them. So just in case, though, and this is something that George Mason argues at the Constitutional Convention, that what if Congress is corrupted? So just in case, there's also a procedure if two-thirds of the state legislatures want to call for such a convention, Congress would have to call for it, and there would be a convention. That procedure that Mason came up with has never been used. A lot of people don't even know that it exists. It could change. There's a group getting together, uh, Balanced Budget Amendment Task Force, and there have been 27 states in which, at some point, legislatures have passed resolutions calling for a convention to propose a balanced budget amendment. Seven states which have not called for a convention are in Republican control in both houses of the legislature. So this is a movement that people are are working on. And groups like Common Cause, the National Taxpayers Union, are joining this group, and they're aiming to have 34 states signed up by the end of 2010. Now, what do I think about it? What does history say about it? Well, the framers of the Constitutional Convention were very concerned about a second constitutional convention for a variety of reasons. First of all, they think that it, they thought that it would undermine the strength of the document. You know, that document we hold is sacred, but if you keep changing it, and if it's only as good as the next 10 years, does that constitution have the reverence in our laws that it does now? 
I also believe that opening up a constitutional convention, even if it's only for one issue like the balanced budget, I think there's going to be a lot of fear of that Pandora's box that once you have this constitutional convention, people are going to be lobbying for other changes and rights that are really important to people might be modified. I would find it unlikely that a constitutional convention would be called and only change one thing. And indeed, an attempt to do this in in Idaho, of all places, failed. So their Senate voted overwhelmingly against introducing a call for a constitutional convention. I think they might be a little afraid of that Pandora's box factor. Tom Morris asks, I'd like to know more about Hoover's rise to power. How did he become so popular to win the presidency and then become one of the worst after the crash? Thanks, Tom. Yeah, I mean, uh, Hoover did it through aggressive use of publicity. He was not a personally engaging or charismatic person. He was an administrator, a former mining engineer. He was then employed as an administrator. He actually worked for Woodrow Wilson, and he liked Woodrow Wilson a lot. There were a lot of people that wanted to run him as a Democrat in 1920. But that didn't come from political skill in the traditional way, like a charm. During the Harding and Coolidge administration, he was Commerce Secretary, and it was an administration that had set out as one of the most important things was the business of America was going to be business. Well, here he is, Commerce Secretary. So a position that generally doesn't mean much to people, and we look to like the Secretary of State. In a time of the 1920s when there was a bit of a retrenchment in America on the international scene, well, the state position wasn't as important. The Commerce Secretary, and during the time there's all this new technology and the stock market is booming, You know, people are looking at Hoover. He's in the right place at the right time. He's very good with making sure that he keeps reporters informed and gaining publicity for his commerce department. He's behind developments in radio and developments in the stock market, things like that. So when 1928 comes along, even though Coolidge was not a big fan of Hoover. He kind of saw him as a bit of a usurper, like, what did he do? Publicly, he gets enough of his support. He gets that nomination. But I think in the White House, that's where some of his weaknesses came out, and he didn't have the ability to really persuade people very well or to be convincing. While many are affected by the Depression, the number who are threatened with privation is but a minor percentage of our whole people. The task is not beyond the ability of these thousands of community organizations to solve. I read a historian who said that, you know, there were there were numerous times where Hoover made statements like to the effect of we have nothing to fear but fear itself. I would that I possess the art of words to fix the real issue with which the troubled world is faced in the mind and heart of every American man and woman. Part of our national suffering today is the failure to observe primary yet inexorable laws of human relationship. Modern society cannot survive with the defense of Cain, am I my brother's keeper? But somehow when he said it, 
it came out long and drawn and, and out and things like that. But when FDR said it, it just calmed everybody down. There's a British Prime Minister, Harold Wilson, who said that governing comes down to events, dear man, events. And sometimes that's what it's about. You're in the chair, and it is a little bit of the luck of the draw, and he certainly pulled the bad card. And I don't think any person in that office at that time would have been reelected, not even FDR, if he had started out and then the recession hit during his term. Jason Guilford wrote this um, on the Fans of My History Can Beat Up Your Politics site back in July 23, but I wanted to talk about it now. Could you address why and or whether Lincoln should be considered a successful third-party candidate? I have issues with this because when you look at the makeup of the 36th Congress, it was already almost 50% Republican. Uh, Jason, thanks for your question. I am not on board with that. I do hear that from time to time, that Lincoln was the first third-party candidate or the only successful third-party candidate in American history. I do not believe that he was. It's really 1854, six years before his election, that the Republican Party is not only founded, joining together all the coalition that are anti-Nebraskans, um, I think that you have essentially almost uh, almost Republican control of Congress in that election, and then Republicans gain the House and the Senate uh, during this period. And in the 1856 election, even though Millard Fillmore was running on the American Party, it's pretty clear that it's the Republicans versus the Democrats. It's the second party. It's not a third party. Your third party candidates... I think you have the various socialist candidates, Eugene Debs, I mean, who's getting you know near a million votes. Uh, you have Theodore Roosevelt in 1912, Ross Perot in 1992, John Anderson in 1980, George Wallace in 1968. These are your these are your big ones. Strom Thurmond 1948. Sharon Hatfield King writes. This is also back in July, but I'm getting to it now. I'm a longtime listener, but I finally have a question. Can a president be impeached more than once if he isn't removed from office? Not for the same high crimes and misdemeanors, but for different reasons. Thanks, Sharon. There's nothing in the Constitution that would prohibit that. The Senate is acquitting the president only of those charges that the House has made. That's at least my interpretation. We talked about this in the mystery of impeachment cast. And one of the many mysteries of impeachment is, does the Senate become officially a court? You know, and at different times, they did drape themselves kind of in that way. And we do bring the Chief Justice of the United States to preside over the Senate, implying that it's a court. But on the other hand, the judicial branch is separate. And we don't allow all sorts of other items that must be given to a defendant when we're talking about impeachment because we're not putting the president in jail. It's not jeopardy of life and limb. It's removal from office. So I believe that in a lot of ways, while there's some court-like functions that the Senate undergoes when it tries a president, it's not a court. And therefore, the prohibition against double jeopardy 
is not there. So I do believe there could be multiple attempts for impeachment. Politically, that's really difficult. If you're going to fail in one attempt, there would have to be some major change that would occur that uh, some major crime or misdemeanor committed that would lead to that. Who was the worst vice president in the 20th century? <laughs> Got this question on Quora. Oh, it is no doubt a Spiro Agnew. Ended up irritating everyone in the Senate. He was pushing the Nixon administration position. It got to the point where reliable Republican senator started voting against the administration in order to get Agnew off his back. So he didn't get along with his one job as vice president of the Senate. Then he got indicted for things that he had done back in Maryland. Another question from Daniel Phelps. And again, this one goes back in July. New listener here. Loving the show. Thanks, Bruce. Uh, I don't know if it's already been done. But I would love to hear your take on our party system, how it developed, and why does it tend towards two parties, a history of third parties, and what would it take to have a robust multi-party system? Thanks, Daniel. I've touched on it in a lot of episodes. I've also looked at Canadian and British systems where it can lead to unhappiness of a sort, this multi-party system, can lead to unhappiness of a sort. In other words, people going out and voting in majority for a certain ideology and ending up with the party that got one-third of the vote because it just happened to be slightly more than the other two fighting against each other and all the little parties. So I think that um, my main podcast on this topic about third parties was called The Moped and the Maserati. And that was a quote given by David Garth, who was the campaign manager for John Anderson back in 1980. And he said, you know, running against the two parties was like running a moped against a Maserati. They just had so many problems. And the American system being that you have the, the split power between the branches, it's hard to maintain a runs to be serious. You really have to run for both Congress and president. But it's hard to run, you know, in 435 congressional districts as a third party in order to be successful. If you don't do that, you don't have the reinforcement of the down ticket pushing the top ticket up. Uh, both are important at different times. Last election, you saw that down ticket push up where there were places where senators got more votes than President Trump running on the GOP ticket. Another factor that really hurt John Anderson is they did polls, and the polls said, they asked two questions. Would you vote for John Anderson? And it was, you know, a fairly low number. And they said, well, would you vote for John Anderson if you thought that he had a chance to win? And the number goes up to almost 25%. And in the end, he got about 6%. So third parties are crippled by a feeling that they can't win. But I actually think that even though it hasn't happened in a serious way yet, we're actually in a great spot for a third-party candidate running for president because you have the Internet, the ability to organize there. There's a kind of anti-establishment streak in American politics. And it's a separate presidential election. So in some of these other places, you've got to win parliamentary seats in in all sorts of places. You can't just be generally popular through the country, whereas uh, 
a well-funded candidate in America could start running kind of like Perot did and build some momentum in one single election campaign. So we'll keep watching. A reminder to go to the www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com site on the premium extra podcast for as little as $2 a month. This week's episode features Eugene McCarthy and the primary of 1968. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.